Hello and welcome to the first Cyflix chat for 2023. Uh, Cyflix is our collaboration between Tune FM, UNE Life and the Belgrave Cinema in Armidale. I'm your host, Dr. Marissa Betts. And the first film for 2023 is a recent doco called Fire of Love. And we're screening it at the Belgrave Cinema on Thursday, the 9th of February. That's next week, starting at 6pm. And speaking with the film, we have UNE Geosciences' newest geologist, Dr. Nick Tailby. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, great. So um, I've got a few questions for you. And first, usually what we do is that we start with a little bit of an um, introduction of you and um, what you do and what your research is about, and then we'll tackle the film. So can you explain a little bit, a bit about your research um, and how did you get into this field? Yeah, no worries. Um, so my name's Nick, obviously. I, um, I hail from Melbourne, so I'm originally a Melbourne boy, but I moved around quite a bit as a child. But uh, eventually I ended up at the ANU, and that's where in I did... In Canberra. In yeah. Canberra, yeah, yeah, and that's where I did my undergrad and my PhD. So I was pretty lucky to get an APA, which is a, an Australian postgraduate award. Um, and then two weeks after finishing my PhD, I took a postdoc with NASA at a place called RPI in upstate wow. New York, working with... Uh, really famous geologist called Bruce Watson. Um, and then when I finished that, I did, uh, I got a position at the American Museum of Natural History in New York and um, was a research fellow there for a few years. So, so how long were you away for in New York? Oh, way too long. I was, I was away <laughs> for nearly 13 years. Goodness gracious. Yeah. So I've basically spent about half of my life here in Australia and half in America. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And, and so what is your, what have you been doing research-wise in New York for the, that time? Yeah, so I got pretty lucky. Um, when I joined the Astrobiology Institute with uh, RPI, they were basically trying to figure out um, what makes a habitable planet. And so a lot of my research was based on um, how you make a habitable world like the Earth. And so my research was focused on uh, studying minerals that we see in the oldest parts of the Earth. Ah. And Fantastic. So, yeah, basically my research is focused on how you make continental crust and where and why. Okay, so using, I guess, um, earth rocks as a proxy for understanding how other planets formed. Yeah, basically. Basically what we try to do is uh, experimentally control conditions and figure out how minerals respond to their environment. And then we go to natural samples like the oldest ones on the earth and figure out, okay, what's the likelihood this formed in, a, let's say, an arc environment. Oh, man. And so where were your samples from and what did they tell you? Yeah, so I, um, I did a bunch of work out in Western Australia, a bunch of work in Canada, and then a bunch of work in some sort of more modern settings like the Lachlan Fold Belt and here oh, in New England as wow, well. wow. So local. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of I dabble in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, and... What has been the most, um, the strongest influence on you as a scientist and a researcher? Like, how did you get into doing all of that stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I, mean, I think I kind of fluked on geology. I think that's pretty common amongst geologists. I think so, yeah. You know, we often come to university to do something like chemistry or physics. Um, but I took an elective in geology and it just kind of made sense to me. And then I, I think it's fair to say throughout my career, um, most of my influences are the people I've been around. So, you yeah. know, I tend to find that I think and and... I operate well with others, and so I, I tend to, you know, think that the, my advisors, like my PhD advisors, my postdoc advisors, and my mentors at the museum, um, they've all been a huge inspiration. Now, in terms of my research goals, I like to sort of try to answer big questions that help us as a society. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, the two two pronged 
answer to the question is the people I've worked with yeah. and what I think is important for I, humankind. I, I was really like um, what you said at the start I thought was really important um, perhaps for some student listeners, right, in that um, you kind of discovered geology with an elective and I was just interested in what you were enrolled in in the beginning because I have a similar story. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm basically, you know, I was always kind of good at chemistry and so that oh. was pretty much going to be my major. Um, but yeah, geology just, it just sort of sang to me. It just sort mm -hmm. of made sense. And, you yeah. know, the idea that I get to go outside and apply, you know, th themes like thermodynamics and kinetics to rocks, yeah. um, that kind of excited me. And it's also, you know, a lot of people, when they think about geology, they think about geology as being the pretty rocks or the, the mm -hmm. interesting rocks. But really, yeah. some of the rocks I work on look extremely boring, but they tell <laughs> a very good story. And the story is what the we're after. The story's where it's at, right? Yeah. yeah, I feel the same way. So my thing was, well, I was enrolled in a museum studies degree, and I just took geology as a random elective and again it's, it just sort of sings to you doesn't it and yeah. it is the stories like I was never very good at chemistry right. um, but it was for me the stories of past life you right. know, on the surface of the planet and how the surface of the planet has evolved. Yeah, it's, you're so so right. Like, And once you start scratching the itch, it just kind of takes over. <laughs> yeah, and you're right, going out into the field and seeing it in the context, you know, starting to put it all together was just huge for me. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a fun time, yeah. for sure. Um, and so is your research like field-based or lab-based or is it both? Because you were talking about using cool equipment before. Yeah, yeah, so I do a bunch of different types of experimental work. So I do, I'd say about 50 to 50% loyalty to experiments in natural rocks. And so I run a bunch of um, experimental apparatuses. So basically what I do is um, in the laboratory, we grow rocks and minerals. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So we call it cook and look. But basically, um, you know, you can control things like pressure and temperature. And then you might run one experiment. And then you do that at 20 different sort of pressures and temperatures. And you map out a grid. Mm. And that grid allows you to understand, okay, where are we in PT space or compositional space mm -hmm. and how do minerals respond to their environment in that grid space? Right. And that's our hard line in the sand. We say, uh -huh. okay, this is how things react. Yep. And then we go out into the natural world and we, we study the same minerals, the same rocks, and that allows us to deduce something. Yeah. About the natural samples. Right. So the when you say environment, it's different from when I say environment, oh, yeah. right? So <laughs> I, I, like, when I talk about environment, I'm talking about like a paleo environment, like an ancient river or a lake or something like this. And your environment is like deep earth and you're, you're, it's a pressure temperature space, right? Yeah. So like I guess the deeper we go down into the earth – the higher the temperature and the harder the pressure. That's right. That's right. And so when, when we talk about experimental petrology, which is essentially the field that I'm referring to mm -hmm. here, we're usually talking about 600 degrees to 1500 degrees. So hot. Yeah. And <laughs> pressures of about two kilobars up to about 40 kilobars. Yep. And so yeah, that's, you know, that's really in the realm of <laughs> metamorphic and igneous petrology. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and... So the work that you're going to be doing in Armadale at UNE is going to be doing these kinds of experiments and this kind of work, or is it something else? Or what are you going to do while you're here? Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that we've been floating around with um, in terms of research. Um, so basically, New England has this, in terms of geology, it has one of the best arcs preserved in earth science in Australia. So, you know, if you go around Australia, lots of it actually look pretty boring, pretty flat. And um, <laughs> yep. you come to a place like Armadale and you realize you've got this beautiful cross section through the crust. And it's basically like the Earth is saying, hey, if you want to figure out how you build continents, um, we'll show you here's some beautiful granite plutons and here's some high-grade metamorphic rocks. 
Um, and some of the largest er volcanic eruptions are actually observed here in New England too. Wow. So the types of research we're going to try and do is sort of reconstruct how this part of the world was, uh, was basically deforming about 250 million years ago. It's such a cool story. When I when I first moved here, because I, I did my degree in Sydney, and um, Sydney geology is quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> sandstone. I mean, if you're really into Triassic quartz-rich sandstone, it's awesome, I guess. But, you know, coming up to the New England area and seeing all, all of the rocks here blew my mind. And that that story about, I guess it's the evolution of Eastern Australia yeah. over millions of years yeah. and that that really is just laid out for you here is just so cool. Um, I work on the Cambrian, so, you know, a, a lot of the time I go to South Australia, which is right. my field area, but I know that there are Cambrian rocks entrained in some of this stuff that you will look at as well. Right. Why and how they're there, I don't know. <laughs> I want to work it out. It's such a cool story. <laughs> it is. It is. Look, that's one of the things I, I'm probably most excited about being here at UNE is that you've got a, a, a world-class example of being able to run field trips in your backyard. Oh. And that's that's something that I yeah. think about quite a lot. It's our outdoor classroom, for yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And being able to take students out there is a real pleasure. Yeah, totally. Um because then you can you can really show them and right. see the light bulb moments um, yeah. happen for them, which is and really it's not wonderful. just like granite. It's like no, <laughs> you can pick whatever type of rock you want, and they're all kind of around here. Oh yeah, for sure. I just ran a field trip last week um, out to just past Tamworth to look at some beautiful early Carboniferous fossils. Yeah, right. And that's part of the arc as well, because this. I mean, when we talk about an arc, it's a volcanic island chain. I guess you right. can kind of um, think about it as, and these islands were erupting um, and producing lots of volcanic sediment, but they were also in an ocean that was quite tropical and warm. And so they developed these amazing coral reefs around them. Oh, nice. And, I would love oh, to see Oh, my that. goodness. Yeah. So these, there are limestones out there that have beautiful fossils preserved in them and that tell a story, they tell a story of their own, but yeah, the, right. they also have volcanic class entrained in there as well. And there's a, there's a combination of a paleontological and a volcanic story that's all kind of wound in together yeah that kind of summarizes geology right (laughs) it all kind of converges doesn't really matter if you're soft rock or hard rock yeah and it kind of it really kind of summarizes the the loon group that we've launched in the last couple of years so llune is litholab une and it's um well it's you me and um tim chapman and luke milan so a couple of other um geologists at une and yeah we just want to kind of bring our expertise together to try and answer all sorts of different questions you know um, hard rock stuff to timescale things, you know. But maybe that's a good segue to the hard rock, soft rock thing because I have billed you as uh, our new hard rock geologist. Right. And is that how you kind of frame yourself? Like is that what – do you refer to those sorts of distinguishing kind of characteristics or what? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think yeah. it's fair to say that I'm pretty much a hard rock petrologist. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I don't dabble. Yeah, cool. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of the, the oldest just like minerals on the planet – they're actually contained in sediments, but they're igneous rocks exactly. or igneous minerals that they contain <laughs> in sediments. So I dabble, right? Um, so, I mean, like most geologists, I think you'll find that I'm, uh, I'm happy to be on either side. Mm-hmm. I, I just tend to gravitate towards... That's your story, so your side morphics. of the story, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess for the listeners, we have to sort of um, make the distinct, like distinguish hard rock geology from hard rock as a musical genre. Um, <laughs> does that align with your musical taste? <laughs> uh, oh boy. Um, I'm, I, oh, I think if, 
Yeah, well, you got me there. I think I'm going to go with classical rock. Wow, yeah, nice. Yeah. Cool. So I'm more of a Beatles, Stones, oh, Tom Petty fabulous. kind of guy. Oh, well, you'll get along well with the other paleo guys. Okay, good. Yeah. good. Have they discovered this about your musical taste yet? No. Oh, no. they're going to fall in love with you. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah I, yeah, I hear there's a bunch of uh, musicians in the department. So oh, yes, absolutely. I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah. Do you play? Uh, not really. I dabble with the guitar, but that's about it. You're an appreciator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Um, okay, so with the um, – we're going to kind of segue to volcanoes now. Right. Um, I know you're uh, – because we were just talking about the deep earth and the geological processes that are happening at those, like, huge high pressures and temperatures. Right. But what – relationship do those rocks have to volcanoes yeah that's a really good question and there's a bunch of literature on this um so if you go to somewhere like the andes you see these beautiful associations with granite rocks um, that are spatially and temporally associated with the volcanic rocks uh -huh. so they essentially look like they're the feeders to volcanic eruptions um so if we, we could take a, a, a an example that's close to home if you go to cower in new south wales but not that close it's probably an eight hour drive yep. but yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, basically, if you go from Cowra to Canoundra, basically mm -hmm. what you've got is you've got this beautiful granite pluton in Cowra. It's where the, the gardens are. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's beautiful. No, I know Canoundra, but I have, okay. don't really know Cowra. Sorry, yeah. Well, it's got, the, so it's got this pluton, and it's where the gardens are. And you can see all these pieces of country rock that have fallen into the granite. Oh, really? But it's definitely a granite. It's definitely intrusive. But then if you start driving north, you start to see all of a sudden you're in the volcanic units. And so oh, it's really? what it's basically showing you is that... The Cowra granite was like the, the magma chamber. Yep. And then the Canoundra volcanics is, is basically when this thing blew its top. Goodness gracious. Yeah, yeah. And so, that you know, there is this spatial and temporal association that we know really, really well. Right. Um, and you can see the geochemical trends. They're actually distinctly from the same body. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, because I, I guess, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a volcanic petrologist and I, you know, call myself a soft rock geo, but I always think about, like, granites and those things being the kind of unerupted... Um, magmas, right? Yeah. That they they just cooled very slowly under the ground and never got the chance to like get squeezed out like a huge pimple. Like they just right. sort of they were just big big blinds it that just sort of right. had to sit under the surface. Yeah, no, you, you you're nailing it. Like, not all of them <laughs> erupt. A lot of them get get stuck Kinda down trapped, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, certain types of granite. So there's a whole bunch of different types of granite out there. Mm -hmm. Some of them are notorious for getting stuck. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, like, what happens, what's the sort of processes that need to go on to make one of these things erupt? Yeah, there's a bunch of different things. Um, and, and this will sort of come out when, you know, if we decide to discuss um, how we can sense when these things are going to uh, erupt. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but essentially, there's a couple of different mechanisms that can be the trigger for an eruption. And the most famous one... Um, you're probably familiar with is Mount St. Helens, where oh, yeah. essentially there was a massive landslide. Right. Okay. Yeah, and that's what we call a caldera collapse. Wow. And so most of the big eruptions that do serious damage uh, usually relate to either an injection of new melt, so you're basically trying to jam too much stuff in the system, oh. or seismic activity that causes things like landslides. And mm -hmm. that leads to essentially uh, the flank of the volcano failing and the whole thing blows up like a shaken Like the up pressure Coke can. is kind of like, you know, released, I suppose. Is yeah. that what it is? Yeah. Or so a lot of these really explosive volcanoes have really high volatile contents, things like water and CO2. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of a magma like a Coke can, right, you shake it up and all yeah. of a sudden you open the lid, the, dis the gases dissolved in the magma, they, they expand. 
And that's what happens with a volcano. You release the lid, you have this catastrophic volume change. That's usually the water degassing, and that's what causes massive eruptions. Yeah. Yeah. And you were mentioning before about um, how to tell if we can, you know, predict if they will erupt. Right. Have we made any sort of progress? Because they seem like in, in geology land, right? Right. The, the volcanologists always have seemed like the craziest ones. You know, yeah. they're the ones that seem like they're ready to get out there and like <laughs> scoop up a bit of lava, you know, for right. the sake of science, right? It's high risk. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, but are they safer now because of the technology that we have or not? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I think, you know, having seen the movie, mm. um, I guess I can talk about the movie. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that struck me about the, about the film is that it's really, it's a look back at that heroic age of geology sure. where you try to do things <laughs> to the extreme. Yeah. And I think it would be fair to say that most modern volcanologists would actually try to limit their exposure, whereas I think... Um, what you saw in the documentary is that we're trying to maximize their exposure. Mm. They're trying to get as much time as close as possible for as long as possible. Mm. Most modern vo volcanologists don't do that. <laughs> um, I don't think the, the, the institution's OHS requirements would allow yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it would cut it today. Um, but you're right. We are actually at this sort of stage in volcanology where we're at a turning point. Right, and so if you if you're like us and you read a lot of proposals or you're mm. on committees, you realise that a lot of the observatories of volcanoes, at least the the ones that we study in great detail, they involve remote sensors and drones. Yeah, and so that's where you know the field is right now is that we're finding safer ways and more reliable and consistent ways of studying volcanoes. And you know you've got to study these things over long time periods too because. You know, these things don't erupt all the time. So if you want to understand how these beasts behave, you need long-term monitoring plans. And that's kind of the state of play right now. So it's it's a lot safer than it used to be, yeah. to be sure. Yeah, that's good. And I don't think that you'd ever catch me, you know, getting super close like that. Like, actually, have you ever gone to a, an, a live volcano, an active yeah, volcano? Yeah, I've, oh, I've never been to an active one. I've been to okay. a, well, a bunch of volcanoes yeah. but they weren't erupting at the time i went to see and because it was um during my undergraduate and i was learning about volcanoes and i was like damn i need to see magma right you know you get this like that looks awesome oh and I it'd have be to fantastic go see it. to look at safely and, and so, yeah <laughs> safely is the key right so um uh, I, I, myself and a friend looked up where the most accessible active volcano is in the world and all close to us was Tanner Island in Vanuatu. Yeah, right. Um, and um, Mount Yasser is the volcano. Yeah, that's an active one. Yeah, it sure is. Yep. And um, we could pay $5 to get taken to the volcano and we walked up the side of it Um and we could just look in, we were just allowed to stand on the rim and look in at this sort of exploding little, right. you know, bubbling red pool right. um, under there. How was the scree field going up? It was terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> they so, can be quite I terrifying. I mean, this, this volcano no. wasn't very steep, um, but we did park, like the car park was the ash plane. Yeah. And, and the the truck we parked um, next to what I realized later was an enormous lava bomb about the size of the car. Yeah. And so I thought if the <laughs> if stuff, stuff like that is getting thrown out of the volcano and can land where we parked, I don't know about this. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was amazing. But I think because I had done some study and realized that there was 
some danger there. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't very well kind of policed, I suppose. Yeah, you know, or probably was, monitored either. Well, yeah, well, they had a couple of like um, locals that just sat on like a park bench that they'd put up there and they would watch the ash cloud. And right. um, depending on the direction of the wind that day, they would tell you which direction you were allowed to walk around the crater. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I want to go home now. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that. Like, you compare and contrast that to a place like Kilauea in Hawaii. Oh, my God. Where the monitoring, you know, the, oh, the, the sensor arrays are just, yeah, it's world class. Yeah. And, like, you can go to the volcano knowing full well what the risks are. Yeah. And so, you know, there are places where you can do it quite safely. Yeah. But there are other places. That's one of the things I noticed in the, in the documentary, too, is that some of the places they were working were pretty remote. Yeah, that's so right. There's, there's no, you know, there's no backup plan when mm-hmm. you're out there. Yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask you about um, was what the the um, outcome, I guess, of the material they collected, I guess, which is which is footage and lots of photographs and the scientific value of of that, right? Yeah. Um, uh, has it been an important contribution in terms of science or has it just been like a spectacle that gets people excited about geology? What's going on there? Yeah, look, they were certainly very prolific as a couple. They probably published over 30 books, I believe. Really? Yeah. Um, and I think Maurice was on a science paper on a place called Oldenio Lengai, which is one of my favorite volcanoes. Um, <laughs> Um, and I think they, I think the statistic is they traveled to nearly half of the volcanoes, active volcanoes on the planet. Wow. So, you know, did they publish a lot of science articles? Probably not. But in terms of popular science and being a voice and, you know, science communicators with regard to volcanoes globally, um, I think they were fairly well known amongst the community as well and Mm -hmm. accepted as, okay, maybe they're a little bit eccentric and maybe they're not publishing a lot of stuff in peer reviewed journals, but they're also you know, presenting a lot of information to the public. Yeah, okay. And that so that footage kind of, is pretty amazing. Yeah, right. So they do, They were kind of respected in the in the scientific Yeah, community. I think they were certainly well known. Like if you look at the obituaries and stuff, yeah, that, that, yeah. certainly a lot of people were like, these were good people. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's good. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if... Um, see, I, were they collecting material, like volcanic material at the same time or is it just yeah. a lot of like recording of the the sort of activity happening. No, no. My understanding of the situation, and this is just from what I've read, is that they were actually trying to open a museum in their hometown. And so they had an amazing collection of like volcanic bombs and glasses um, and, you know, you name it, whatever volcanic phenomena you wanted, they probably Uh, had a pretty impressive collection. They would have, yeah. Yeah. The glasses are insane. Yeah, they are. That, That is actually a good point, maybe something to discuss, is that all of the amazing stuff that can get shot out of a volcano. Yeah. And like for like when I was on that volcano in um, Tana, I walked up the side of it and I was like, why is there um, a whole bunch of straw hanging around? Yeah. And then I picked it up and it's glass. Yeah, it's spun tears. glass. It's yeah. Pele's yeah, yeah. hair or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. insane. Yeah, the textures you can observe in volcanic eruptions and particularly how they re- relate to different styles of eruption are actually mm-hmm. pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so most good geology collections will have, you know, a fairly extensive array of yeah. weird geology terms because we love weird terms in geology. <laughs> yeah. um, but you'll have these amazing arrays. I mean, in fact, there's entire textbooks related to this. Yeah. Like volcanoes are 
weird, strange beasts, and they produce amazing minerals and rocks for sure. Like obsidian is one that probably most people will have heard of, and that's yep. just it's just a glass, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's just completely amorphous glass. <laughs> and in fact, that's one of the weird, weird situations where geology and archaeology sort of meet it's up. It's true, eh? Right, trying to figure out obsidian yeah. trading routes and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, because when you break it, it becomes that like sharp blade. Yeah, my understanding is that it can be the, the sharpest blades that you can actually produce are from amorphous glass. I could be wrong, but I've heard that they still use obsidian blades in some surgeries. I heard that too. I don't know how much truth is in that. Yeah, yeah we should check that. Yeah. yeah, we should check that. Fact check. Fact check. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, to finish, last question. Sure. Um, so geologists always have really good like bucket list locations. Yeah. Um, do you have any volcanoes on there or do you have any, like let us know what's on your geology bucket list. But mostly for me, so I can also put it on my bucket okay, list. Okay, okay, okay. Um, well, this feels like you're telling me or asking me who my favourite child is. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'll go with the thing I'm most excited that I'm working on right now. Yep. And so um, I'm working with a, a good friend and colleague at University of Rochester, and we're looking at the Apollo lunar glasses. What? So these are volcanoes on the moon that are active maybe 2.9, 3 billion years ago. Stop it. And so, you know, when we think, talk about volcanoes all the time, we talk to, what we tend to think about is the Earth. Yeah. Right. But when you look out to the, the terrestrial planets, so Mercury, Venus, Earth, yeah. Mars, Vesta, almost all of them have volcanoes. Now, a lot of them are extinct now. But, you know, the idea that I get to work on samples that were collected by Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and they look as fresh as they are today because wow. there's no atmosphere and there's no weathering on the moon. Um you know, yeah. if I had a bucket list, it would be to go back to the moon because <laughs> our generation, we never saw that, right? Like this all no. happened before our time. I mean, do, do you want to go to the moon or do you want just want someone I want to, to send go- someone else. Okay, someone else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, you want to watch it on TV. <laughs> yep, exactly. But no, that that's I, I, I get excited about the prospect of going back to the moon and, you know, Wouldn't we've that be just amazing? S- sort of scratched the surface. Yeah. Um, I think the next generation is ready to have a crack at it too. Does it mean, does, does finding those kinds of rocks on on those um planets and and other um bodies in the solar system mean that they had like tectonics and uh, active kind of fascinating processes yeah and we're probably going down a rabbit hole thing and we're trying to wrap up the interview but you go ahead i like rabbit holes (laughs) count me in no it's a really good question because if you look at if you look at the earth and venus system like they're extremely similar in terms of size and composition yet when we look at venus we don't see any direct evidence the tectonics, right? We mm. don't see chains of volcanoes. It's certainly got way more volcanoes than we have here on Earth. What? But it doesn't look like it has the scars of tectonics at all. And so, and we look at the style of volcanism on Venus, for example, and they all look like what we call effusive lavas, right? They come out and they flow oh. smoothly, but we don't see any of those explosive eruptions like we do on Earth. Yeah. And it's telling us that, you know, the inner workings of Venus are probably remarkably different Bit to different. Earth. So even though it's considered the twin planet, there are some pretty big differences. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to have to unpack some of this stuff at the cinema next week. And yep, I'll make we sure I'll plant a few questions in the audience, if not just ask them myself. Right. Um, but, yeah, thanks so much for chatting. And no I'm really looking forward to the film next week. Cool. Looking forward to it too.